All right, you guys. Hey, uh, so yeah, more questions and answers. I realized the guy whose idea this was that, man, you really ought to do some questions and answers. He asked me some questions. And I didn't answer any of his. So I'll try to keep this brief, though. Um, so here he says, uh, which groups are fighting in Syria? Well, so that's a hell of a lot. Um, basically, you've got the Islamic State in the east that controls Raqqa. And then among the other Sunni insurgents, it's basically Arar al-Sham and uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, which has now renamed itself Jabhat al-Fatah al-Sham. And then there are other smaller militias who maybe are less beheady and yet uh, are basically subordinate to uh, Jabhat al-Nusra al-Fatah al-Sham, which is nothing but al-Qaeda in Syria. That's what it is. Their leader, Jolani, Golani, I guess it's Jolani, is sworn loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri. And uh, these are the guys that we've been fighting for. Um, on the other side, uh, and th not that ISIS or al-Qaeda has been doing very well there as of late. Um, uh, on the other side is the Syrian state and its army, the Ba'athist state and its army, which perhaps contrary to popular belief, is actually a majority Sunni army, including at leadership levels. Um, and uh, then, of course, they're fighting with Hezbollah, with the Iranian Quds Force, and with Russia. And uh, America's role in here has been basically funneling arms to Al-Qaeda, and back then, even to the Islamic State, and not just arms, but support too. Trucks and uh, all kinds of equipment by way of the moderates, the so-called moderates, these FSA fighters who really ended up in effect for years acting simply as the arms procurement branch of Al-Qaeda. You know, Al-Qaeda sends the guys who are a little bit less Al-Qaeda-y to go collect the weapons from the West. Thanks a lot, guys. Um, but in effect, these guys were defecting and they were funneling these weapons and prisoners and whoever to Al-Qaeda and ISIS all along. And that's who sold uh, some of these prisoners to ISIS who later were beheaded, were the mythical moderates that America was backing. You know, when John McCain went to Syria and met with the Northern Storm Brigade on the porch there, those guys admitted uh, they had already admitted before John McCain went there. They had told Time Magazine on video, and it was published on the Time website, that, yeah, there, it was their leader, the Northern Storm Brigade's leader, was saying, yes, we're veterans of the Iraq War. We fought against the Americans there. Which, what does that mean? Rewind a couple of years. Syrians traveling to Iraq to fight against the Americans in the sunni based insurgency? They would have been, I think, probably correctly categorized as Al-Qaeda in Iraq. That's who they were. That means they were Zarqawi's men. And that was in 2012. Pretty sure. Could have been 13. I'm pretty sure that was in 2012 when McCain went and met with them. And you know what? Hell, I can cue this up. This is old hat for people who are used to hearing the old live show from the last few years and what have you. But um, where's my Hillary stuff here? So here's Hillary Clinton. The context of this clip 
is she's on CBS News. She's being interviewed by CBS News. And the reporter is asking her, it's the very beginning of 2012, the end of February 2012, one year into the Arab Spring, basically. And the CBS News reporter is, of course, going with the conventional wisdom and says, uh, why aren't we doing more to help the people of Syria overthrow the government there, the evil Assad government? And here's uh, Secretary of State at the time, Hillary Clinton. Now, this was she was advocating this reporter's same position against Obama, but here her job is to make Obama's case, which he was an interventionist there, just less so than her, just to be clear. But here she is making Obama's case for less intervention, or at least why to be wary about intervening in this so-called civil war, uh, this actually already Saudi and American-backed uprising in Syria. And here's what she says. We know al-Qaeda, Zawahiri, is supporting the opposition in Syria. Are we supporting al-Qaeda in Syria? Hamas is now supporting the opposition. Are we supporting Hamas in Syria? Which, that's kind of a red herring. But uh, the first part, the Al-Qaeda part, was certainly right. And then check this out. So I think, Wyatt, you know, despite the great pleas that we hear from those people who are being ruthlessly assaulted by Assad, if you're a military planner or if you're a secretary of state and you're trying to figure out, do you have the elements of an opposition that is actually viable? We don't see that. We know. So there you go. OK, and um, she's right. And then she continued to advocate for that exact same position anyway. And Obama followed it, um, even though he himself called it a fantasy. In fact, somewhere I have the clip of him calling it a fantasy. That somewhere, uh, somehow, you're going to create an army of moderates that can think about this argument. This army of moderates, meaning non-military men, Sunni insurgents, and yet without passion. (laughs) And that these men are going to take on Al-Qaeda. They're going to take on the Islamic State. And they're going to take on the Syrian State and its army and police and their allies in Hezbollah and the Iranian Quds Force and Russian air power. This army of mythical moderates who never really did any fighting anyway, whose only job was procuring arms for Al-Qaeda in the friggin' first place. So, yeah, if you want a better treatment of this, Google my interview um, with uh, Tom Woods about it, or with, I think Jason Stapleton also did a pretty thorough interview of me about the serious stuff, too, if you want to go back and listen to those. Um, Okay, and then he says, what are the reasons to think Iran did not intend to develop nuclear weapons? Well, first and foremost, of course, the answer is Gareth Porter. Uh, First at, um, well, first of all, he wrote the book, Manufactured Crisis. And by the way, it's not like all I'm saying here is based solely on his work or anything like that. Just he's the best and deserves the credit. Um, But no, also he's right. Um, And that is that... uh, Oh, the book is uh, Manufactured Crisis, The Truth Behind the Iran Nuclear Scare. And the truth is that after the Iranian Revolution, the Israelis still got along with the Ayatollah all along. It's like, hey, Israel, you back Iran and we'll back Saddam Hussein and we'll have a big war. It'll be great. That's the history of the 1980s for you right there in a nutshell. Um, When they did Iran-Contra, that scandal, it was having the Israelis sell Iran tow missiles for us and then we'll replenish your stocks. That was the sleight of hand there for the plausible deniability. 
But in the early 90s, the Israeli government decided they needed to start demonizing Iran, and they do back Hezbollah, and that's a problem for the Israelis. Um, and they decided to go ahead and make that break, mostly just for political reasons. And as Gareth Porter shows, and this is actually really sad, I'm sorry, I don't want to get too far into this, but Yitzhak Rabin, when he was trying to do the right thing and give up the West Bank and let them have independence to some degree, you know, um, and he really did mean it, he brought up and started demonizing Iran in order to distract from that fact and say, the real problem isn't, you know, Palestine. The real problem is Iran, everybody. Look over there, Iran. Because he was trying to do the right thing. Well, then Netanyahu incited his execution, his assassination, which took place. And shortly thereafter, Netanyahu came to power. And he began, this is in the mid-1990s, in 1996, uh, when Netanyahu was prime minister the first time. And he picked up the same mantra only to distract from the fact that he was never going to give up the West Bank. And then every uh, prime minister after him, Barack and Sharon and then uh, Ehud Olmert and now Netanyahu again. I don't think I left anyone out there. May I have skipped one. Um, they have all kept this up. Look, everybody, Iran, 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 in order to keep you from looking at Palestine. That's the background of this whole context. And, of course, the Americans are the same way. The Soviet Union fell apart. They've got drug cartels down in Latin America. But, you know, hell, before you can whip up a new Cold War against Russia or even a war on terrorism in Iraq, you need an enemy. And so at the end of the Cold War, the Pentagon immediately started demonizing Iran and their growing missile capability and whatever they could do. In the Bill Clinton years, particularly the Likudniks, it was Dennis Ross who came up with the policy, coined the phrase behind it and everything. Dual containment. We have to stay in Saudi Arabia, which, yeah, might get America attacked. But anyway, we have to stay in Saudi Arabia in order to enforce the blockade and the no-fly zone bombings of Iraq and the continued containment of Iran. Dual containment, which is, I guess, better than funding both sides in war against each other. I'd settle for offshore balancing, but how about nothing? How about leave them alone? But instead, they stayed in Saudi Arabia in order to enforce this dual containment policy. And what it really meant was to set up a system of hoops that the Iranians would have to jump through that guarantee that we cannot have reproachment and we can't have peace with Iran. This will always have this outstanding issue before us. And then particularly uh, in this century when they really started advancing their nuclear program, their civilian nuclear electricity program. And the deal is probably more than half the reason that they developed their electricity program is so that they would have it to bargain away. But the original Ayatollah Khomeini in the 1980s, as Gareth Porter has reported in Foreign Policy magazine, and he went there uh, to Iran, and he met with these guys and asked them all about the history of it. It's highly doubtful they're making up stories because they're telling the stories of how they asked the Ayatollah in the 1980s, hey, Saddam and Ronald Reagan are using poison gas against us. Ayatollah, can we have the chemicals? Can we mix them and go ahead and make chemical weapons and respond in kind? And the Ayatollah said, no, you may not. And that's like the Pope Holy word, infallible dictate. That overrules politics. That's an Islamic edict. 
No, you may not make chemical weapons. It's a big, fat period at the end. And the same thing with their nuclear program. They had started developing a nuclear program. But the Ayatollah said, no, you will not go down the path toward weapons. Period. And the new Ayatollah, who's not so new anymore, Khamenei, he picked up the same thing. According to them, it is un-Islamic to have a bomb. Now, I hear you and I agree with you. Let me be first to say that these guys are politicians and for that matter, they're clergymen and some religion that I don't know much or care much about either. One that's probably not right. So why would I trust them or believe them or their word? That's not the point. The point is that it's a reportable fact that they did issue these edicts. And there is no indication, no credible indication at all that they secretly had given other separate parallel orders that contradicted their public order. And their real order said, yeah, no, go and make nuclear weapons. There's nothing like that. There's no evidence, despite all of the years and years and years of propaganda you heard, there's no evidence they ever had a secret parallel nuclear weapons program separate apart in any way from the civilian nuclear program they've had all along. The civilian nuclear program, which is perfectly legal under international law, under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which they've signed and we've signed, that says that they are guaranteed the unalienable right, in fact, to peaceful nuclear technology. They signed up for that. Now, they could unsign that treaty and make nuclear weapons. It's their sovereign state. Iran's a sovereign state, just as America can make nuclear weapons, and nobody can tell us not to. Now, our signature to the NPT, in fact, says we promise to get rid of our nukes, and we don't abide by our side of it at all. But if you're a non-nuclear weapons state like Iran, then you promise to not just not make nuclear weapons, but you promise to let the International Atomic Energy Agency inspect all of your stuff. And quite contrary to popular conception, Iran has had a safeguards agreement with the IAEA and has allowed these inspections all along. And the IAEA has never found any indication or evidence of a nuclear weapons program at all. When they point to nuclear weapons research prior to 2003, even that, of course, that lowly substitute for a nuclear weapons program, i.e. a program to make an actual bomb or two or ten, their supposed nuclear weapons research even is based on a forged laptop, the so-called smoking laptop or laptop of death, which is clearly the product of Israeli intelligence and has bogus stories about bench-level experiments in laser enrichment, worthless crap, has wrong guesses as to what kind of missiles they'd be working on at the time, and all kinds of stuff, all kind of flaws, totally debunked. They never even named the scientists. In fact, at one point, they finally even admitted there was no laptop. They, it was a CIA laptop. They put the information on it. So sorry about telling you a story that we had smuggled out this nuclear weapons scientist's laptop because, yeah, sorry that, yeah, no. Totally debunked. And then um, there's university studies where they, through Tehran University or whatever it was, 
they were getting all this so-called dual-use technology. And if you had a mindset that they were making weapons and you were an American intelligence officer and you saw this stuff coming through, you would go, aha, see, the military is using the university as a cutout to get this equipment. You could build a conspiracy theory all like that. Except that Gareth Porter did the journalism. And no, check it out. The magnets, they were for use in the Whatchamajigger at the university. And the other things that they got, the rings and the what? No, the rings and the magnets were the same thing. Whatever, there's 10 different things. A balancing machine and all these things. They were all being used for the purposes that the Iranians claimed in the first place. And it was all provable because here's a picture of it sitting on the counter. It was never part of a nuclear weapons program. If you had confirmation bias, you could make that mistake. Fair enough. But it turned out it wasn't true. And that's it. So that's why... Um, what are the reasons to think that Iran did not intend to develop nuclear weapons? Because they never did. The worst you could say, I'm happy to quote admit, I guess, I don't think it contradicts my case at all, is to say that they wanted to have a latent, I think I started to say this earlier, maybe I never finished the thought, uh, they wanted to have a latent nuclear deterrent, meaning they wanted to show that they had the ability to enrich uranium and that if they were ever attacked by America and Israel, that then they would be able to make nuclear weapons. I think even more than that, they just wanted to build up enough of a nuclear program which can be dual use if you continue to enrich your uranium up to weapons grade or if you have a facility for uh, harvesting and processing your plutonium waste from your nuclear reactors or something. Then this kind of stuff, you can make bombs out of it. Um, and they wanted to have enough of that to give away, to say, you guys back off, you guys lift our sanctions, and we will shut down the facility at com and we will and and here's a bit of the terms of the deal shut down the secondary enrichment facility at fordo or com same thing qom uh where they had the big earthquake remember that um uh shut down huge majorities like from from 50,000 centrifuges down to 5,000 or 10,000 i think it is at the natanz facility uh they literally poured concrete in the core of their iraq reactor which could have produced weapons-grade plutonium as waste, even though they never have had the ability to, one, harvest the plutonium waste out of there. They would have to get the Russians to help them do it anyway, and they could never do it secretly. They'd have to shut the whole thing down for a year and take the lid off and do all this stuff in front of everyone. And they never had a facility to reprocess the waste in order to clean out and get just the good stuff, the, the bad stuff, the plutonium that you can kill a city with. Um, so that was never a threat anyway or whatever, but they have guaranteed now that their heavy water reactor, they've changed it to a light water reactor type configuration. And, um, in fact, they may have just shut a rock down altogether and it's the other plant that they have run. Anyway, Boucher that they have running it all. But anyway, so they have vastly scaled back their production facilities. They have converted or exported their uranium stockpile so that they have far less than you could ever make into a bomb if you did enrich it up to weapons grade, which they have no weapons grade stuff at all. And they've expanded inspections to include the mines, to include the, the um, facilities where they make the centrifuges, where there's no nuclear material, but where they can count every centrifuge that comes off the line and every bit of everything. That's all in the nuclear deal. So if they want to make nuclear weapons, how come they just signed up to let the ATF live inside their gun store? 
you know, the reason they signed up and said, come on in, is because they've got nothing to hide. Just like David Koresh. Do you know that? That he called his gun dealer one day and said, hey, I want to buy some more rifles. And the guy said, hey, the ATF is here right now and they're asking about you. And he said, oh, really? Put them on the phone. I'll invite them over. And the gun dealer said, hey, ATF agents, I got David Koresh on the phone. You want to talk to him? He wants to invite you out. And they went, no, no, no. Yeah, anyway, because David Koresh wasn't making nukes either. He had no highly enriched uranium to hide. And also, no, he wasn't too crazy to negotiate with, and he wasn't abusing his own people, like they said. That's really more of a metaphor for the Iraq war, isn't it, than Iran? But anyway. So, and what's the counterfactual? If they wanted nuclear weapons, they could have made some. It's not that hard to enrich uranium. They had the centrifuges. They could have enriched uranium up to weapons grade, and they could have made a simple Hiroshima-type, gun-type nuke out of it. No problem. It'd be kind of difficult to deliver, but still. They could have an atom bomber 5 or 10 if they wanted. But, you know, what they did was, when Bush announced the axis of evil and said, okay, Iraq, Iran, and North Korea, all of whom are members in good standing of the Nonproliferation Treaty and your safeguards agreements with the IAEA, I'm accusing you of making nuclear weapons and I'm coming to kill you. Iraq, you're first. Well, the North Koreans, along with some other things that drove them out of it, which I don't have time to get into now, but you can check out my speech about it if you want to see that. It's on YouTube. Um, just Google my name in North Korea. Um, but uh, they said, well, screw this. I'm, we're making nukes. They withdrew from the Nonproliferation Treaty, kicked the IAEA out of the country, and they started harvesting their plutonium and making nuclear weapons. Saddam Hussein, as I said in the last episode... Uh, said, come on in, guys, I'm not doing anything. Check it out. The Iranians took the same tack. The Iranians said, our hands are up, don't shoot. Our books are wide open, you can inspect them. You have no credible accusation we're making nuclear weapons here, pal, because we're not. Everybody look, everybody look. America's making accusations, but look at what we're doing. We've got a safeguards agreement, man. Hands up. And that's been their strategy, basically, for not getting attacked. Because I guess they knew what I said just now a minute ago is sort of wrong. Because if they really tried to break out and make nuclear weapons, the Americans would have known and the Americans would have attacked before they could get one ready. That's the deal. They kind of know that they can't actually really start trying to make nukes or the Americans will invade. So they're trying to have just enough of a deterrent to let us know that, well, one day they could make nukes, maybe. And to have something to bargain away, more importantly, as a bargaining chip to bargain away and get their sanctions lifted and, you know, be welcomed back into the so-called international community and all that crap. So there you go. I think I over-answered the hell out of that for you. How long is this? 23 minutes already? And then what are your thoughts on why Israel's so hell-bent on ousting Assad? Um, well, I don't think they are. I think the Israeli strategy is to keep him in power but keep him at war with these terrorists. Uh, as an Israeli strategist said to the New York Times back a few years ago, let both sides hemorrhage to death. Which, eh, I don't even think he meant to death. I think he meant into, you know, a full coma. But uh, as Barack Obama explained to Jeffrey Goldberg in 2012, that that's right, Jeffrey, if we get rid of Assad, or at least, yeah, he says, transition Assad out of there, replace his government with somebody else, then that'll help take Iran down a peg. And if you go back to the clean break strategy, uh, why, why target Saddam? 
Because, and this makes no sense whatsoever, but David Wormser is an idiot, but this is his logic, that if you take out Saddam Hussein, then that will put all this pressure on Assad. And Assad is the root of all evil because Assad and Iran, and Iran with Assad's help, back Hezbollah and southern Lebanon. And the Israelis want freedom of action in Lebanon, at the least, if they don't want to run off with the damn country or part of it anyway. Um... And so uh, that's their thing. You know, the, basically there's this Shiite crescent, as they call it, Iraq, Iran, and Hezbollah. Oh, sorry, Iran, Syria, and Hezbollah. But now you have to add Iraq, too, because of America's war there. So now it's Iran and Baghdad, not Western Iraq, Islamic State, but Eastern Iraq and Iran, allied with Assad. Oh, and by the way, when I was saying who all's fighting in... Uh, Syria, I should have mentioned the Bada Brigade too, from Iraq, fighting on the Shiite side there. But so since George W. Bush fought a war for Iran and empowered the Shiite axis, then weakening Assad, not necessarily really overthrowing him, but weakening Assad and reducing his power like this is sort of a consolation prize to help make up for the fact of the, the real results of David Wormser's policies against Saddam Hussein. The road to Damascus runs through Baghdad? Yeah, boy, in a way. But what a mess. Uh, so, there's that. All right, and then, um, so sorry for going on so long, but I hope you guys liked it. You keep asking me questions on Twitter or email me, uh, scott at scotthorton.org, and I'll try to get them answered for you. Okay, cool. Have a good one.